Welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm Dr. Saima Chaudhry, an autoimmune and general neurologist who practices clinically at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University in Rhode Island, the smallest state in the United States. I'm excited to announce that I'll be your new podcast host for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry podcast series. The JNMP strides to publish the most groundbreaking and cutting-edge research from all around the world. On this regular podcast series, we aim to highlight papers discussing important topics from our recent issue. One such topic is myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody-associated disease also known as MOGAD, or MOG antibody-associated disease. This has become an increasingly recognized autoimmune condition that we know affects the central nervous system. Many neurologists around the globe, including myself, want to know more about this disorder, including how to both diagnose and treat it. In its recent issue, the JNNP has highlighted a multi-center retrospective study entitled Prognostic Relevance of Quantitative and Longitudinal MOG Antibody Testing in Patients with MOGAD, a multi-center retrospective study. The paper that we're going to discuss is available on the JNNP website and will be free for access for a month after this podcast is released. So be sure to check it out. Here with me today to discuss this paper is author Dr. Matteo Gastaldi. Dr. Gastaldi, who has both an MD and PhD, has been the head of the Neuroimmunology Laboratory and Neuroimmunology Research Unit at the IRCSS Mondino Foundation, a referral laboratory for the detection of neuroclial antibodies in Italy. Dr. Gastaldi, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. I'm pretty excited. I know, I'm excited as well. Um, before we started recording this podcast, Dr. Gastaldi and I were just talking about how this is both our first time doing a podcast. Yep. And I really love the JNMP and the information that it's being able to disseminate to listeners. And just, I'm, I'm very excited and humbled to be a part of this opportunity. So let's get started, Dr. Gastaldi. Let's talk a little bit about the condition at hand um, and about your sure. paper. I'm ready. So, Yes. Based on your expertise, can you tell me a little bit about MOGAD? What is this condition? Yes, sure. Well, so MOGAD clearly uh, is, a, is an inflammatory disease that goes into differential diagnosis with the, with the main demyelinating disorder that we know, which is multiple sclerosis. And of course, has uh, a close relationship also with neuromyelitis optica associated with acroporin-4 antibodies. So there are some common clinical features between all of these diseases, such as presentation with optic neuritis and transverse myelitis. But then there are huge differences between these three categories of patients. Well, I'd say probably the main uh, distinction is that whilst NMOST and, and uh, multiple sclerosis are diseases that are bound to relapse somehow, MOGA is a condition that can be monophasic. And that is, I think, one of the huge problems we have in clinic, which is to determine which patients are actually going to relapse and which are not. And uh, other important differences, especially with multiple sclerosis, are that uh, the treatment response is different. So the, the type of treatments that we use to, to treat uh, MS patients are not effective in most cases in MOGAT patients and can even be detrimental, as has been observed also in neuromyelitis optica. So that's another very important difference. And probably the last important difference, and I don't know if that's your feeling as well, but uh, whilst we look at uh, equiporin for mediated disorder as a rather homogeneous disorder with a clear pathogenesis, I think that in MOGAD, we have a relatively heterogeneous disorder and it changes, for example, according to age. So we have uh, proper encephalitic manifestations uh, such as ADEM, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis in children, whilst we have a higher number of patients having like, such a 
optical spinal phenotypes in adults. And there are also a lot of uh, very odd situations with heterogeneous phenotypes, like involvement of the peripheral nervous system and cranial nerves, uh, which make the disease still a bit um, not well defined as an MOST, for example. Thank you. I think that was a great description of, of what MOGET is. A couple questions for you. So yeah. how do these patients in your clinical practice, how have you noticed that they typically present? Yeah. So, well, clearly the, the, the most common presentations that we see, and the, so we, 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 we work as an adult, as adult neurologist and neuroimmunologist center, but we also get in touch with a lot of pediatric cases from people that send to the lab uh, the samples. And in general, in both adults and pediatric patients, the optic neuritis is by far the most common presentation. When you look at children, then the, the, the second one is, is, is ADEM in general, and consider that uh, among patients with ADEM, up to 50% uh, of them can be positive to MOG antibodies in children. So that's another relevant uh, condition. Uh, and then the other, the other very common presentations are, uh, well, the involvement of the spinal cord and transverse myelitis, which can be as in equiporin-4-mediated disease, a longitudinally extensive myelitis. Thank you for that very thorough explanation. Yeah, I've noticed that in my clinical practice, when I see MOG patients, they typically present with relapsing optic neuritis. I'm not sure if that's something that you've noticed all the way in Italy as well. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's surely pretty common. I'll tell you more. The, the, the feeling is that the type of optic neuritis they present uh, often has uh, the characteristic of a perineuritis. So, for example, pain, uh, orbital pain is rather common, even more common than you find in multiple sclerosis, for example. And uh, the severity of the of the optic involvement at the beginning when the, the pain is present is not necessarily that bad. Uh, it can become worse uh, with time. And, yeah, clearly the relapsing optic neuritis is a common phenotype. You, you, have, you clearly have the sensation that patients with MOGA can be divided in different groups, right? So you have a group that is relapsing optic neuritis. You have the group of optic neuritis following ADEM episodes that can be classified as ADEM on. So there are quite a few distinctions there. And then what is the pathogenesis of MOGA? Because you mentioned with NMO spectrum disorder, we know that it's the aquaporin for antibody that's involved. What's the case with MOG? Well, that's a very good question. I, uh, it would be great to have a nice paper dissecting the pathogenesis of MOG ready to go. But so in my opinion, what, what is quite clear is that we still don't know what the clear pathogenesis is. And I, I, I strongly believe that the, the probably the pathogenesis is heterogeneous in different conditions. We, we know clearly that, for example, complement-mediated damage, which is one of the main features with aquaporin-4 antibodies, is not necessarily one of the predominant features in MOGA. And that is pretty clear from paper that show that uh, most antibodies from patients are, are not able to activate complement, at least in, in vitro models. So Probably the antibodies have some kind of contribution to demyelinating damage, but are not the, the, the main or the sole pathogenic actor. And it's likely they, they contribute to worsen the, the, the myelin damage, uh, but are not the first cause of it. Um, but we still, we still don't know many things about it. Well, that's like all the other autoimmune conditions. I feel like we are just at the brink of what we know about these conditions, and, and MOGAD is um, no different. If anything, I feel like we know less about this condition than even MS or NMO spectrum disorder at this point. But thank you for your insights in terms of you know what could be the pathogenesis of this condition. And then can you describe in brief, how is MOG currently diagnosed? What do we neurologists do globally in terms of um, diagnostics? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, uh, since we're a clinical neurologist, we have to start from the clinical presentation that has to be compatible. And there's been a lot of discussion there on whether to look for MOG antibodies in patients that, for example, clearly have other condition, which, of course, exposes ourselves to false positive. Then the, the, the mainstay of the diagnosis is, of course, as in other demyelinating disorders, the combination of clinical features, brain and spinal cord MRI, and CSF features. And uh, probably here that the most relevant assay that we can request is MOG antibody testing. And this is a crucial point because the story of MOG antibody has been so complicated because the, the type of assay used for the detection of the antibodies is crucial to actually stratify patients. And here we want to use a cell-based assay, which is a confirmational test that identifies uh, MOG antibodies, usually in conditions that are quite distinct from multiple sclerosis. And ideally, the gold standard is the use of a live CBA, which means that the cells that we use actually cultured and used when they're still alive. But the problem with that is that this is not very easy to perform in labs that do not have uh, cell culture facilities. So most laboratories rely on fixed CBAs, which uh, have a fair performance, but still inferior to live CBAs. Yeah, in my clinical practice, I always hope to get cell-based assays. So I think the lab that you send your MOG antibody testing to should be taken into account. Absolutely. And so then let's talk more about your paper, which I thought was amazing because you really get into, we were talking before about how this is a hot topic, right? So you get into the hot topic in autoimmunology, which is MOG titers. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you guys found in your study, particularly in terms of MOG titers? So, you know, certainly we can use MOG titers to diagnose this condition, but how do we as clinicians use MOG titers to predict, let's say, relapsing disease? And what were the results of your study? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for appreciating the article. Uh, and and the, the questions you have were exactly the questions that we had and somehow we still have. So as you said, it's important. The tighter quantity measurement uh, is not something that is necessarily routinely performed. So we have to ask ourselves whether it's worth doing it because it takes up time and money or not. And we clearly know that that is important for diagnosis, right? So higher titers associate with a more accurate test result. In, in our study, we tried to investigate that in a, in a large cohort of patients. And we, first of all, we tried to correlate the titers at onset and during remission and to see, well, if titers correlated with the disease phase. And we found that, as shown in other papers, actually higher titers uh, were found during attack phases compared to remission phases. Uh, as in other as in other studies, we, found, we also found that higher titers at the beginning of the disease were not able to predict relapses and in general the course and the or disability of the disorder. But what was, what was rather unexpected is that high titers during remission were actually associated with a relapsing course. And that was quite interesting because that could be correlated, for example, with a persisting um, immune reaction and high, high production of antibodies could correlate with disease that we didn't manage to suppress with the, with the treatment. And so uh, by analyzing these results, we found that the high titers at, the, at remission were actually able to predict relapse course both in Kaplan-Meier analysis and in multivariate analysis. And in multivariate analysis, that was the, the sole predicting factor that we identified. So this means, at least in theory, that repeating the testing of antibodies during follow-up when the patient is in the remission phase could help to stratify those patients that could be uh, worth treating, with, could be worth treating with immunosuppressive drugs, for example. Would you recommend for certain patients following MOG titers, or is it just a you get it one time and that's it? 
so we do that routinely now, and I think it's somehow helpful. I think it can also be very misleading. And that what I mean is that usually clinicians try to find in tighter measurement just support to what they already decide they want to do. So if they are high, they decide to treat the patient, they're happy. Uh, but I mean, what we clearly saw in the paper is that the longitudinal dynamic can be helpful in some cases, but do not necessarily correlate with the disease. And what I mean is you find patients that relapse during spike titers, for example. So there is an increase in titers and patient relapse. But we also found patients where antibodies were completely stable and they experienced relapse during titer stability. So probably you, you wouldn't want to use them as an absolute indicator of the patient condition. But following through time, it's important also because one indicator that emerged quite clearly from our testing was that the negativization of the antibodies associate with a reduction of the relapse risk. And this can occur at very variable time. Uh, so I wouldn't limit myself to just testing after, let's say, six months. I would keep testing because I know that when the, the antibodies become negative, then that is a patient that has a lower relapse risk. And then I guess one of my other questions involves treatment of the condition. You know, how would you treat these patients that are MOG positive? Um, and how does that differ in the acute versus chronic phase? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question. And I, I have the feeling in this area that we try to mediate a lot of concepts and of, of, of strategies from neuromyelitis optica at the beginning, but we realize uh, as time passed that actually two, these two diseases are quite different. So during the acute phase, what we usually do, I think that the mainstay of treatment in all centers is, uh, is intravenous steroids, high-dose steroids, which is probably the most convenient treatment that you can use. Uh, and we usually follow that up with a rather long uh, tapering with oral steroids. Uh, and if the patient has a severe condition at the beginning and does not recover completely with steroids, we usually associate treatment with the, with the plasma exchange or immunoglobulins. So after, after having used oral steroids for a rather long time, if there are no contraindication, we try to do that for at least six months. Then we have to take up the decision whether we want to put the patient into some kind of immunosuppression. And uh, that is the hard decision, I think. And if it's just a monophasic disorder, you have no evidence of, of, of relapsing disease, we don't necessarily do that, uh, but we always do that once the patient has relapsed. And then the options you have are quite confusing because you can, of course, use, as it, as it has been done uh, probably imitating what we've done with Apoporin-4 disease, you can use rituximab, but uh, what I found in my experience and what has been reported in papers is that not necessarily rituximab in this condition is that as effective as it is, as it is in neuromyelitis optica. So usually our first choice is oral immunosuppressant. And this works for, uh, for example, we use uh, quite a lot as a thioprin, which is an old drug that seems to be quite convenient in this condition. And this is how we treat usually adult patients. And uh, the situation is a bit different with a pediatric patient where, where for example, you would want to avoid prolonged steroid treatments. And in those cases, I've seen very nice data that support the use of chronic IVAG as a treatment for the disorder, and, uh, and it's surely interesting and needs to be validated further. Uh, we have a huge problem in Italy, which is how we prescribe IVIG because those are not reimbursed by the national healthcare. I know that's a local problem, but for us, for us, it's a big issue. So we haven't used them too much so far. Yeah, we have similar issues in the states where we have to get prior authorizations before starting any chronic immunosuppression, and that can be very difficult, obviously, when treating patients. But in the states, monthly IVIG is something that we've been doing more often, 
Mm -hmm. um, but certainly people have been using agents like you've suggested, like azathioprine. But this brings back to your point that you described initially of how MOG is just a different entity we're finding compared to MS versus NMO spectrum disorder. So Absolutely. the diagnostics of, of MOG is important because um, we treat them differently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, going back to your paper where you were talking about titers and you said high titers. So I always get into the problem of, you know, the titer comes back borderline. So what do you mean by high titer? What is that number? That, that, that is a good question. I noticed that you immediately spot a weak, the weak spot of our study. No, it's not, it's not a weak spot. It's a, it's an honest problem. So we define high, we, we calculate the cutoff that was the ideal cutoff to separate relapsing patients and monophasic patients. And our titer was calculated through uh, endpoint titration. So we diluted this, the serum further and further until we got no reactivity. And the cutoff we identified was one in two, uh, 2,560, uh, which is rather high considering that the, the cutoff for diagnostics, so just to decide whether it's positive or not, is usually one in 160. And the borderline area that you see so often is usually considered between one in 160 and one in 320 or something like that. It depends according to the laboratory. So here, when we talk about high titers, we talk about fairly high levels of antibodies. But I think that that's the, the 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 main question I have in my mind now. So we've we've got some interesting results in an essay that is performed in one lab. Uh, it would be interesting to understand how we can export this concept and have that applied in different labs that use different conditions, or maybe in labs that use the commercial CBA, which is a uh, completely different because there are no data comparing quantitative measurement in different essays so far. So that would be interesting to do. Yeah, and I, I really liked how your, your paper discussed the tidal levels um, and discussed treatments. And then you also mentioned that the treatment may differ between the pediatric and the adult population. Can you just highlight that again for MOG patients? Yeah, so in, in general, so we were quite surprised because in general, the, the, the idea is that the event of getting a seroconversion to negative is, is usually more common in, in children that experience monophasic ADEM, for example. And there, the, the, this negativization is, is actually extremely relevant because it means that you have a, a child with a demyelinating disorder and you prevent him to get chronic treatment. So it's extremely relevant. In our paper, the percentage of patients that experience a seroconversion to negative was actually similar in adults and uh, pediatric patients, but we think that there was a bias due to the patient selection. So we only had patients that were retested over time and it's more likely to find pediatric patients that get retested because they have, for example, relapses. Um, so that, that, that could be one, one reason. In general, the other thing that was quite interesting is that we noticed that when you had relapsing patients, uh, all the relapsing patients that became negative somehow did so only after we started immunotherapy, and I mean chronic immunosuppression, and after that, they never relapsed. So this means that maybe observing negativization after treatment could be taken as a, and this is very exploratory, it could be taken as, a, as an indicator that the treatment is doing its job, basically. So this will yeah. be, need to be explored further. Yeah, I think your paper did like an amazing job talking about Mog titers treatments of this, and you really just focused on a very, very interesting topic that is clearly relevant for both general and autoimmune neurologists globally, because here we are, I'm in the United States, you're over in Italy, and we're both very interested um, in this topic. So if you had to describe the main points that you would want to highlight from your paper to the general neurologist listening, what would you say those are? 
So I think that, first of all, I think it's useful to retest uh, over time for MOG antibodies. And it's, uh, it's probably useful to try and get from your lab a quantity of data of those antibodies. And ideally, in the future, we'll be able to use that information to stratify this patient and try to understand which patients actually deserve to be treated with immunosuppressants. So I think this will be the, the main message there. Yeah, and as this condition becomes more increasingly recognized, hopefully we're able to better diagnose and treat these patients. And certainly the study that is highlighted in the JNP, my hope, will add to the way that we're able to effectively treat our patients moving forward. So um, that's all I have for today. Thank you all for listening. The paper that we discussed is available on the JNP website and will be free for access for a month after this podcast is released. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on the JNP podcast page on Apple Podcasts. You can find a link to this and a link to the paper that we were talking about in the description of this podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. With that said, that's all we have for today. See you next time. Thank you very much.